Hi everyone, welcome back to QBD Book Club, the podcast, a show brought to you by QBD Books, your favourite book retailer. I'm your host, Victoria Carthew, and I can't wait to spend some time with you today. So without further ado, let's get into it. Well, the world's top authors have a knack of predicting what we'll be talking about well before time, then including it in their latest bestseller. And that is just what the marvellous Lord Geoffrey Archer has done in Next in Line. It has a decidedly royal flavour and he joins me now from London. Geoffrey, hello. Thank you so much for joining us once again for QBD Crime Club. Thank you. But I'm bound to admit that I had the idea for the book two years ago. I handed it in a year ago. It was published two months before Her Majesty died. So it was one of those amazing coincidences that I brought out a book called Next in Line just at the time when we lost our monarch. So it as a weird coincidence. Absolutely, but that's what I mean. It's, it seems to be, it's almost as though you you know what's coming, not that you could have obviously predicted Her Majesty's passing, but, you know, to, to be something, to be writing about something that is so topical. I mean, I can't think of a, a time in recent history when we've talked so much about the royal family and here you are with a book on the topic. Tell me what it's been like uh, for you in, in the UK because you're always so much a part of events. Well, uh, I thought my immediate reaction would be, and indeed, all the people around me were worried that uh, it would look contrived when I hadn't meant it to be. But uh, luckily, I'd already sent it to two members of the royal family, and both of them had already written back saying how much they enjoyed it. Uh, and one has gone further and done quotes for it, but and the other wrote a long handwritten letter saying how much she enjoyed it. So I was released from that worry almost immediately. And since, during the interviews, people have recalled the time I had with Princess Diana when she was uh, the Princess Royal. And uh, I think that helped as well, that uh, and everybody in the business, like yourself, worked out uh, that I would have begun this two years ago. Because it is, of course, the fifth William Warwick novel. It's so wonderful to have him back again and that there are so many themes and storylines in this book. But as you say, the Princess of Wales is one of the characters. And because for you, it was very personal, wasn't it? Well, I had the privilege of working with Princess Diana uh, in her charity work as a charity auctioneer, which is my hobby, which I still do up until this day. In fact, I did two last week. Uh, so I still love it. And that's how we got to know each other. And it turned from being her auctioneer. Uh, she invited Mary and myself to her home and we invited her to our home and we wrote to each other. And towards the end, she was she phoned as well. So, yes, if, though you never you know, the truth is, Victoria, that you you never think you're a friend of the royal family even though they they write dear jeffrey love diana you still think you know there's a quite rightly a distance between you and i suppose here 25 years after her death i hadn't realized quite how close we were well because it is a lot of the the way you've written it is um it's very respectful, but it's intimate. You can tell, you really can tell that you knew her. And we should say, I, what I think is so fascinating is that the characters in this book, you know, there are fictional characters, but you've also had to include alongside real life characters. I imagine that was sort of quite a fine line, uh, how you write the real characters for real. And that's fun. Uh, putting together real life 
and your own fiction. As I say on the front page, is this a true story? Yes. And you have to decide which parts I actually experienced with Princess Diana and which parts I simply made up. And you're quite right, that fine line, it's fun, and you mustn't go over it because uh, that would be, dare I say it, that would be disrespectful and frankly unnecessary. I guess the other thing that is a lot of fun in this book, as is always the case with you, we've got some incredibly devious characters because, of course, the wonderful uh, William Warwick is back, but so are Booth Watson, so is Miles Faulkner, some shocking characters and the devious nature of them. I imagine for you it's a lot of fun to write. Who gets to be the worst or, you know, worst bad guy? My wife always says she enjoys the baddies more than she enjoys the goodies. And I think probably because you can give them more character, you can make them do more things. And Miles Faulkner is a very unusual criminal who William Warwick has to face in every book. And my, because Miles Faulkner is bright, he's good looking, he's charming, he's competent, he's well educated. It's, it's, it's not your normal crook. So uh, he's up against a master criminal in that way. And I like I like the idea of pitting William Warwick in each book uh, against this man. And as you know, in each book, he rises in rank. And in each book, he takes on a different challenge. So each book is individual. This one is about royalty protection. And he ends up needing the help of Miles Faulkner, which is a slight twist. Absolutely. And that, that thing as well, as you said, Miles is very clever. He's smart. He's good looking. I and mean, William Warwick has those characters as well. And as much as they despise each other, there is a, a kind of respect there, isn't there, as well? Oh, yes. I, I think that's, that's almost bound to be the case. Otherwise, the story wouldn't work. You need that to interact. Uh, it's not easy to write that because you, you have to take the reader along with you. And if they don't go along with you, they'll put the book down. Oh, absolutely. There are so many um, themes and storylines here. Of course, you mentioned the Royal Protection Service. We have some terrorism thrown in. We have the art world, of course, once again. But the Royal Protection Command is such an interesting facet because I think most regular folk wouldn't really understand what it was or how very different it is to your regular police force. That must have been fascinating research to do. Also, I was convinced, Victoria, that I had ne I'd never read a book about royalty protection. It was a subject that I'd never seen openly discussed. And having, uh, when I decided to write about uh, Princess Diana, there was also the other half of the book where I found out some information from my brilliant researcher, uh, Chief Superintendent John Sutherland, who sadly retired from the Metropolitan Police when he was head of the murder squad. He retired in what he described as one murder too many. And I've been working with him now on all six books. And uh, when we touched royalty protection, he said he knew that some 30 years ago, there was a massive problem in royalty protection because the, the, the top man was literally sifting off money and no one could do anything about it because he was involved with the royal family. He was almost a law unto himself. And John Sutherland found me the current head of royalty protection and brought him along. And he says, I know the person who did the investigation and brought her along as well. Wow. A, 
a chief inspector in the force. And she said, what I'm about to tell you, Jeffrey, I don't want you to print any of the names involved. And I don't want you to point to the specific thing they were doing. But she told me the whole story of not only what they were doing, three of them working together, but she also, she uh, not only what they were doing, but how they were getting away with it. And she was put in to catch them and sort them out. And she did. Wow. So I was able to write these two stories. William Warwick in charge of royalty protection, trying to catch the head of royalty protection, who was senior to him. But at the same time, Ross Hogan is number two, being the personal protection officer to uh, Princess Diana. So you were able to follow her life and what happens in the life of a personal protection officer to a member of the royal family. It gave us such a wonderful perspective because you did see it from, I guess, both sides of the fence. And it's easy to imagine why they were almost untouchable because it does seem out of the realms of, you know, ordinary folk. So that must, I imagine those stories, I could just see you sitting with some popcorn, what, you know, listening to the story. What, are you sure? Is that serious? Because it would have been unbelievable hearing those tales. Yes, I think that's been the fun in all the books. When I've done drugs, when I've done murder, when I've done... Uh, police corruption, whatever it's been, art theft, John has brought in the head of that department and they've sat with me and told me their problems they've had. And of course, you're quite right, as a layman, you sat there with your mouth open. And it's not everyday work for them. No. Policing can be boring, but occasionally something very exciting happens or, or and they are in charge of it. So in each of the books, I was able to bring... Uh, the top of the profession in and listen to what they had to say. And that guided my particularly strange mind in several <laughs> directions, which, which was great fun, great fun. And how unique, because I don't suspect there are many other authors that they would ever sit down with and trust because you have been doing this for so long and in, in so many different ways that you obviously have that inbuilt trust as well. I think that's very important that people realize I'm actually not in the game of offending. I'm yeah. not in the game of writing something that is, is um, unpleasant. I'm in the game of entertaining. I'm a storyteller. So when they tell me their stories, I have to leave out quite a lot, either because it doesn't work with the story or doesn't fit. Uh, and then I have to expand and extend maybe a tiny thing they've told me. I thought, ah, if I go down that road, I'll have a whole section, a whole chapter because uh, and then other times you think, are you no i'm not interested stop talking about that and move on and often they, they don't see the story because it's everyday life for them and then suddenly they'll say something that they think isn't that important and i'll go magic magic give me more and and they look a bit surprised and i say i promise you my readers will love that <laughs> Absolutely. It is a little bit of a step back in time, of course. This is set in the late 80s. So the terrorism thread and the, that storyline that runs through the book as well, it really does take your mind back because that was a, a very different time in that kind of terrorist world and the threats to the UK, wasn't it? Yeah, very much so. And I'd already decided when I began the William Warwick series that I would pretty well go through my life. He would be pretty well the same age as me and he would go through from 
uh, comfortable on the beat right the way through, if I live long enough, right the way through the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. And each book would be a separate uh, crime. And each book would be a different rank so that he rose in rank with every book. He's now a superintendent. He's now in royalty protection. When I move on to the next book, he'll be a chief superintendent and it'll move on to another sort of crime. So, so yes, I had to think about that right the way through. And I had to make sure every book was individual and make sure that each book was credible. Because if a policeman can read a book and say, oh, it's rubbish, Jeffrey. We don't call him a custody sergeant. We call him a desk sergeant. And they go through the list of mistakes you've made. I have to make sure there are no mistakes that a police man reading the book. In fact, it's been very pleasant to have so many letters from the police saying how much they're enjoying it. But they also know, to be frank, that I'm being advised by two amazing people. Not only John Sutherland, who was head of the murder squad, and uh, a chief a chief superintendent but i have a michelle roycroft who was a detective sergeant and she was in the drug squad and her stories are just unbelievable and of course they also seep into the book i was going to say because just as you have those good people around you william warwick has good people around him as well and we get more insights into the the wonderful other uh, police that he works with Yes, it's fun to uh, all the people I've met kind of make a, 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 a they make an entrance on and off the page. Why not? If you've met them and you've seen them and you've watched them, why not put them into the book? I always say to young writers, write about what you know about. And when you use people, don't hesitate to use people you know or can physically see because that will ring more true in, in the book. And so, yes, pretty well all the police in it are human beings. I've crossed, met, uh, whatever, and thought, well, I've got a young Indian here. Uh, he's joined the police force in London and, and describe him and think about his life. And then he tells me his background and I use a bit of that. It, it, then it has a real ring of authenticity. And I'm, as you say, I'm, I'm sure that's what people are enjoying. It is, as always, a, uh, a little art history lesson as well, because your knowledge is is phenomenal, um, and we get to we get to hear about some fabulous painters and artists through the through the generations and through the through the years. Do you, on that front, go back and do some research, or is that all knowledge that you already have? I think the over the years, I think over the years, I've acquired a great deal of knowledge through sheer. Uh, it's been a love affair. In your own country, for example, I'm very proud of having a Boyd of Shoalhaven, which your country is desperate to steal back from me. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you can write that into the book. <laughs> They've been quite disgraceful about saying what will happen to me when I next go to Australia if I don't break the picture. Now, I have a lovely Shoalhaven by Boyd, and I have several Australian pictures in, in my home. Uh, so, yes, the love of art is very wide and very long. But even then, you know, you can make mistakes. Let me give you a wonderful example. In the next book, I have written Rubin's Christ Descending from the Cross. And my chief researcher has written back and said, you can't descend from the cross when you're dead. <laughs> what the picture is Christ 
dissent from the cross. And so, yes, you still make mistakes uh, and a good researcher or a good editor picks up a silly little mistake like that, which I'd get so many letters about if they didn't. Oh, absolutely. But you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely kind of sideline because apart from the terrorism and the policing and the royals, we have this great insight into the art world because Beth plays a, Beth Warwick plays a much bigger role in this book, but also to, to the dealings of, of, you know, auction houses and collectors and, and how it goes on. It's quite fascinating. Well, that's again been a lifelong one. My closest friend, uh, Chris Beatles, owns an art gallery in the West End. And for 30 years, I've watched him trading and dealing and my love of Sotheby's and Christie's because of my auctioneering as a charity auctioneer I go to Sotheby's and Christie's and watch the top auctioneers in the world and what they're doing so that has sort of that has come almost by mistake that's a hobby that's a love affair uh, but I've taken advantage of it and again Victoria I say to young people if you're a world expert on frog manure write about frog manure don't invent don't write ghost stories or sex stories or violent stories write about what you and people will be fascinated that you know so much about this subject uh, and they will learn from it so write about what you know about I do think art history is a little more interesting than frog manure, but I'm taking, I'm understanding what you're saying. <laughs> Speaking of which, another of your great loves makes quite the appearance in your book. We all know how much you love your cricket. And there's, there's a, not a test match, but there's quite a cricket match in this in this book. Yes, I, I do love the game of cricket. I rarely bring it into books because I'm in 97 countries and I'm afraid not many of them play cricket. Uh, so I've often, I've been asked to write a book on India. I wouldn't for the same reason. They've asked me to write a book on cricket. I wouldn't for the same reason. I have, I have to write for, uh, 97 countries in th uh, 34 languages. So I, I avoid cricket, except when I'm speaking to silly people like you, who actually think you've got a cricket team. Uh, oh. And I know the illusion you're suffering over there. <laughs> you might actually have a cricket team and we're looking forward to you coming to England <laughs> and to quote uh, to quote that slow bowler McGrath uh, we will be uh, we will be winning 5-0 when you come for the Ashes oh I'm no right. no <laughs> I think actually I think it'll be a good series uh, if you haven't got the best batsman in the world we have and you've we've both got amazing fast bowlers at the moment I think it'll be a very tight, so I'm looking forward to it, really looking forward to it. It should be and a great series. It's also hard to judge because of the past three COVID years and the lack of international cricket. I mean, some countries have had more than others, but it's actually really hard for everyone to judge themselves and how they're going, not only as a team, but also as individuals. Uh, as individuals, we have seen Coley unable to score a century in three years. Uh, Smith hasn't been quite as good as uh, we might have expected. Labashan, I have it correctly pronounced, forgive me. We love Manus Labashan, yes, we do. And he, I think he's brilliant. I think he's he could be the thorn in our flesh. I think he's quite outstanding. Uh, and now we've got a couple of very good fast bowlers, but again, you're right, they haven't been out on the field. Yours haven't been. You went a long time without a test match, and everybody sort of came back... Uh, Really, no one knew what was going to happen. 
Speaking of that and, and the changes, I mean, life has been so very different these last couple of years. I know when last we spoke that the COVID and the lockdowns and all the things had really interrupted your routine. What about getting into this book and then the next one I know would be on the way? Have you been able to get back to what you love to do and how you love to write? I can't really complain, Victoria. Mary and I were down in Cambridge and I was able, and we were locked down in Cambridge, and I was able to pick up a pen and get on with my work as if nothing had happened. I miss the intercourse of people. I miss the the challenge when people tell you stories and tell you bits. And I miss that. Being locked down, you miss that. But Mary had a much, a much tougher time because she's chairman of the Science Museum of Great Britain, and... Uh, she had to close this museum twice and open it twice and get rid of 400 staff. So she had a very much tougher time than I did. And now she's back as chairman and trying to get it back to its old numbers because she was number two only to the British Museum for numbers. And she was very keen to get back to that uh, position of being number two because she will retire from as chairman next year, having done nine years. And the prime minister was very keen that she got everything back to where it was before she left. And you've been able to get back to writing the way you would like to write as well? Yes, I now can return to uh, Mallorca, sit in the sun, get <laughs> up at 5.30 uh, and, uh, and get on with the job. I write, as you know, from six until eight, from 10 until 12, from two until four, from six until eight, go to bed around 9.30, 10, get up again the next morning at 5.30. It's a routine I love, the first draft taking about 45 days, about 300 hours. And what you have in front of you there is the 14th draft after a thousand hours. So it's a long and tough process. And here I am at the age of 82. It doesn't get any easier. You've still got to go, I do, I don't know what other perhaps luckier authors, I have to go on and on and on until I really think it's ready to show the publisher. You mentioned your, your beautiful wife and, and her incredible history and career that she's had herself. There's been a lot of commentary in this book. There's some wonderful, strong female characters. And it always does feel a little bit like you're paying tribute to all the great women that have been in your life as well. A remarkable mother. My father died young. A remarkable mother who uh, was a local councillor in Western Supermare, a small town in the West Country, who pretty well single-handedly brought me up. Uh, a remarkable wife to whom I've been married for 56 years, who, as I've said, is now chairman of the Science Museum. And as soon as that finishes, <clears throat> she's in the process of building a children's hospital in Cambridge. And, uh, of course, 11 years with Margaret Thatcher. Uh, that combination makes me have a tremendous admiration for strong women. And, of course, they get in the book. You're quite right. Uh, Beth is Mary. So what you see when you read Beth, I go back to this telling writer, write what you know. I've got this remarkably clever, bright and beautiful wife, write about her. And so she gets in the book and she is Beth. And, you know, and that's, again, as you mentioned earlier, that is the authenticity that we see as well. You mentioned uh, just before about missing people and the stories. Uh, you give us a little hint at the end of the book about where your head is heading next because you came across a great, a great story. Uh, Viking. Yes, and I've been told off both by Alison and by my publicist Ruth and by my publishers 
for on one interview going too far. So the answer to your question is that William is going to face the biggest problem he's ever faced in his life. And I am not going to tell you what it is. That, that's definitive. Well done. And you're keeping everybody happy with that as well. Well, we look forward to seeing what William's next challenge is. But for now, I know readers right around the world in 97 countries uh, are looking forward to enjoying Next In Line. Uh, Jeffrey Archer, thank you so much. Congratulations once again uh, for another smashing read. And uh, we look forward to seeing what is up next. Thank you very much indeed, Victoria. And thank you for having me back on your amazing show. I really appreciate it because it, in the end, I may write the books, but in the end, I have to pray that people will read them. And it's people like you who get to the readers who make my life so much more pleasant. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks so much for your company today on QBD Book Club, the podcast. We'll chat again soon.